You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. I am joining today Lieutenant General Robert Ashley Jr., who became the 21st Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency in October of 2017. He formerly served as the Army Deputy Chief of Staff G2, where he was a Senior Advisor to the Secretary of the Army and Army Chief of Staff for all aspects of intelligence, counterintelligence, and security. General Ashley is a career Army military intelligence officer who has commanded at the company, battalion, squadron, and brigade levels with combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan as a squadron brigade commander NJ-2. His commands include the 206th Military Intelligence Battalion, Fort Gordon, Georgia, Intelligence Squadron, Office of Military Support in Washington, D.C., and the 525th Battlefield Surveillance Brigade Airborne and the 18th Airborne Corps. Other key assignments include the Director of Intelligence, United States Army Joint Special Operations Command, the Director of Intelligence, United States Central Command, the Deputy Chief of Staff Intelligence, International Security Assistant Force, and Director of Intelligence, United States Forces Afghanistan, and Commanding General of the United States Army Intelligence Center of Excellence at Fort Huachuca in Arizona. So welcome, General. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Isn't that an awesome bio? Yeah, I had to cut it down from like 12 pages. I just got the, the things I want to talk about. Um, I said welcome to you. I'm sitting inside your headquarters, so I appreciate you taking the time to open yeah, up to me. Happy to do it. So a lot of a lot of our listenership uh, are people who are early career professionals, are thinking about whether or not they want to keep doing this for the rest of their career, or maybe even their grad students who want a career in intelligence. Some might be thinking the civilian side. Some might be thinking working for like DIA or for NRO or NGI on the military side. So it's I always like having someone who's served a long career as a military intelligence officer. And I want to ask you, really, what made you decide to do this as a job? And I can kind of caveat that question because when you joined the Army, MI wasn't necessarily seen as the path to high levels. It certainly changed since then. So a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek. Interesting that we do this as a spy museum. So as a kid, was I a huge fan of James Bond movies? Absolutely. 
but as I looked at some of the things that were you know available in terms of the military, and I thought, where is it that I can actually have an impact? And it will just challenge me on the you know every day, and then I can I can get into the kind of the fabric of what we do as a nation, strategy, things like that. Um, kind of capitalizing on my degree, which was in international relations and political science. I thought, well, Army intelligence sounds interesting, but even at that point, not really having a sense of what the IC meant. You know, I mean, I knew there was a CIA, I knew there was, you know, other organizations out there. Uh, but when you come in, you know, at the entry level, for the most part, what you're going to end up doing is uh, some pretty tactical stuff. That was 1984, much more on the tactical side of the house. Um, the ability to come in at, at, at a junior level in different parts of the IC uh, exists now. So it's a, a whole gamut of things that you can do early in your career to get exposed to it. For me, the real exposure for the IC uh, was as a lieutenant in the 82nd. My company commander said, hey, we're going to do a spotlight tour. So myself and four other platoon leaders in the 82nd Airborne Division, they go, hey, we're going to do a spotlight tour. We're coming to Washington to see the intel organizations. And what he did is he coordinated for us to come to, I think it was NEMA at the time. Uh, we came to DIA headquarters. Uh, we went over to CIA, uh, went into the Pentagon, and got a sense of, hey, here's what it's like to work in the, in the larger IC. But it wasn't until 89 when I actually came to DIA to go through the National Intelligence University, what it's called now, then the Defense Intelligence College, they got exposed to, hey, here's really kind of the operational strategic side of intelligence, and I went through a master's uh, program for you here actually in uh, DIA headquarters, and that kind of started opening other uh, opportunities for me to do things at a different different level instead of the tactical side. Well, you've been a military intelligence officer from a second lieutenant now all the yep. way to a three-star general, and I'm wondering, where were the most challenging transitions? Was it being a brigade commander, or was it, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm extrapolating, I wonder how challenging it was to go from the G2 and being only responsible for Army intelligence to DIA when all of a sudden you're dealing with O&I and you're dealing with a broader strategic perspective. Was that the most challenging aspect of it? Um, I wouldn't say that it's more challenging. It's just different because uh, even though you said, well, you just had to worry about the Army, there is incredible complexity in the systems, the structure, the training, and everything that we try to do from an Army standpoint to provide intelligence to uh, the warfighter on, on the ground force side of the house, but but that also matriculates up and feeds. It has dependencies on the IC. You know, how do we get things from uh, the combat support agencies? How do we feed them? So it it's not as if I'm just sitting in a you know an army focused lens. That's the preponderance of it. Uh, but it is informed by what the other services do, what other programs do. How do I get information from them? You know, what is NRO doing that I'd like to leverage to get down you know, feeds in real time at a division or a core for a G2 to be able to share with that commander to have better situational understanding. So it's it's not a different it's it's not a different complexity, it's just a different set of problems to solve. Um, but it is absolutely fascinating work. Well, I, what's interesting to me is is whenever you have a, a longer career, there's been a lot of transitions during the time that you've been in the yeah. army. The Soviet Union was the main adversary when you joined and that was true for the first, you know, 6 or 7 years of your career. And in the 90s of the craziness of asymmetrical threats and peacekeeping operations, I know you were in the Balkans. I'll ask you about that in a second because we might have chewed some of the same dirt there. Um, And then looking at counterinsurgency theory and the counterinsurgency strategy, and then now a bit of a transition back to kind of great power adversaries. I basically might have answered this question with the question, but I'm wondering how did the mission change for military intelligence throughout this time period? Um, 
you know, it's interesting if you go back and look at where we were for Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and the capabilities we have, and then what we can do now, our ability to see, provide information. Uh, it it kind of goes back to the discussions you have on the nature and the character of war. So I always figure out a way to get Thucydides into the discussion. Um, so when Thucydides wrote about the Peloponnesian War, he said there's two constructs. There's, there's the nature of war and then there's the character of war. The nature of war is immutable. It doesn't change. It's about fear, honor, and interest. It is a violent interaction between people that still happens today. But the character war changes, and the character war is changed by, in, in many ways, just you know, for the most part, by the technology of the day. So if I think about Second Lieutenant Ashley um, as an infantry battalion S2, when I would go to the field, it was Stadler Mars pins, it was acetate, and it was maps. There were no computers. Right. Um, and so literally when I jumped in on an exercise, I pretty much had it in my rucksack uh, or the little you know, pack I carry with all my stuff, and that was it. That's all I needed. You know, we had a radio, um, and you'd kind of work on the talk, and you'd battle track as best you can, which is not an uncomplicated skill to have. And now let me jump forward, and I go into a talk, right, with some young second lieutenant or, or young intel shop that's in a battalion now. Digital maps, imagery, sensors, feeds from national level all the way down. Yeah, everything's networked. And there's just this incredible ability to get access to information to the point where we really get inundated. And so then how do you manage what you really have? And so for me, as I think about what's transitioned, it's, um, it's a huge part of the technology. But it is interesting to see us having gone from, okay, we're going to go across the Fulda Gap. We're going to look at peacekeeping the Balkans. I've got some time in South America chasing uh, drug individuals uh, in the early 90s that have uh, since demised, and then uh, really post 9-11. And I think what we've done post 9-11 and the equipment and the speed in which we've developed capabilities has created an expectation on behalf of maneuver commanders that we can do that in great power conflict. Um, so we're working for what does that look like because from a domain standpoint, uh, for the last 17 years, Maritime, space, air, uh, were not contested. Ground was contested. And we see that in you know, our wounded warriors and, and the attacks on the ground. So um, that level of complexity that's adding with great power conflict that you have potential contestment across multiple domains. And then we pretty much dictated the up-tempo and the pace and speed of operations. We will want to do that in great power competition, but the enemy gets a vote, and that's a far, far more complex fight, which is why all the service chiefs are looking at, you know, how do we replicate that training environment in places like National Training Center, and how do we get to build muscle memory of what it means to be able to sustain that kind of a fight and that kind of speed of operations. You mentioned the ground element was contested, but not as it would be in a great power conflict. You're not dealing with no. Soviet or now Russian or Chinese-made anti-tank yeah. weapons. Um, I, you brought up Desert Storm also, which has always been an interesting benchmark for me because, you know, as we developed new weapon systems in the 1980s, they were completely untested. You know, everything from yeah. the M1 to the Bradley to the Apache. And the Desert Storm was kind of the coming out party, and we kind of figured out that, oh, our stuff's way better than the Soviet-made equipment. Yeah. Um, we've gone through a long period now where 
we've gone through at least one or two technological generational leaps in equipment, ground, air, everything else, but so have the potential adversaries. I know uh, DIA's, one of their primary missions is, you know, understanding the technological advances of our potential adversaries. Without saying anything that you can't say, it feels as though we're almost in the same boat now where we were before 91 and Desert Storm because we just haven't had a great power challenge. At least Vietnam, our Air Force was going head-to-head with MiG-21s and everything else. Um, Obviously, a major conflict you can't replicate uh, in a training environment. Uh, What we've seen over the course of really Desert Shield, Desert Storm is how much our enemies, let me rephrase that, how much our adversaries or competitors um, paid attention to what we were able to achieve and, and say the wow factor on them was pretty high and mm-hmm. what we were able to do. And so they started looking at how do they adjust uh, their doctrine, TTPs, their organizations to be able to do that. And so without getting anything really sensitive, you know, we watched the Chinese reorganize their structure to go combined arms, integration, you know, what we see in like combatant command kinds of constructs where they can bring an integrated capability, they realize they can't exist in those kinds of stovepipes. And so they've watched us closely over the last uh, couple of decades to see exactly how we fought uh, and how we, uh, you know, how we modernize and how we integrate. Very complex to think about the difference between uh, a baseball card and an HVI and, you know, fire and maneuver on that kind of scale. And, you know, for us, uh, what we built um, in the Big Five, and I'll probably forget, you know, what they all are. I, I, it was M1, the Bradley, well, the Apache, the, Apache, the Blackhawk, and yeah. I think the Patriot. And Patriot. So that's the five. Well done. Um, at some point after the 73 war, um, you know, senior Army leaders go over and they, they say, how is it that this military was able to defeat two armies larger coming at them both north and south? And so they get up on the plains of the Golan and they sit down with the Israelis and they have this conversation and that's where we figure out airland battle. And then from airland battle and forces command, then we come up with the big five and we start looking at these are the kinds of systems that we have to have in the future. Um, even, and I haven't read the entire document, but the bipartisan uh, document that was written about, you know, kind of where we are from an investment standpoint, modernization, it is not an inexpensive uh, endeavor to be able to sustain you know, our military and the technology. There's a really interesting double-edged sword, I think, with our pace of operations since 9-11, is that we've had a lot of practice in a lot of different things, whether mm-hmm. it's logistics, intelligence, you know, operations on the ground. So we're in much better shape as far as training and, and knowledge and even institutional knowledge. Sure. You know, People who were second lieutenants in 2002 are now maybe brigade commanders or even one stars. Yeah. But every other country has been able to kind of watch us and kind of understand what we're doing. So, you know, a potential adversary hasn't fought a major war in a long time. There hasn't been one. So you kind of have this trade-off. I'm not sure. They're basically just collecting intelligence on us around the world. No, I think that's fair. Um, And then, you know, for us, we always wanted to be in a way game in terms of how we project power. Uh, The logisticians of the Department of Defense, uh, Transcom, and everybody that moves equipment, uh, for the services, it's phenomenal. I mean, you've probably heard the old analogy, you know, operations is for amateurs and logistics is professionals. Um, because it really does take somebody to to understand the mechanics behind the fact that in the middle of the Jazeera Desert, the FOB Sykes, 
in a rack, 120 degrees outside, I can go in the chow hall and grab a Dove bar and have a you know, piece right. of ice cream in the middle, right, in the middle of the desert. And that little bin full of ice cream never actually was empty. Yeah. So those guys are good. Um, but you point out, you know, uh, Chinese, for example, the last time they had a conflict was 79 with Vietnam, uh, the Vietnamese. So it's been a while. Right. And there's no replication for that combat experience. Uh, the other thing we have to be really careful about is the lessons that we've learned from the CT fight, not to carry those over. Not to fight the next war like we fought the last one. Yeah, and the other part is that, you know, we've, we've put some restrictions on ourselves um, in terms of burden of proof, you know, which understandably right. so, in terms of say, well, how do you know that's him? It's because I'm able to say four or five very definitive things that that's who that is you know, in the middle of that grid square, in the middle of nowhere. Now, you go to major combat operations, you're not going to have four or five different assets that's going to say, yep, that's an artillery battery. You're going to probably see a couple of radars come out. You're going to do what we did back in the 80s. You're going to map that out, and you're going to say, if I see a radar here, then chances are, based if they are following their doctrine, I'm going to see organizations in these locations. You try to confirm some of that. But it's not down to the, the burden that we put on ourselves in a CT fight. So there's some lessons that we have to... You have to realize that you know, if you if you apply that, you're going to have iron raining down on your head, while you're trying to hit a level of burden of uh, proof on a target that we shouldn't be applying. Not a good way to fight a war. Yeah. Uh, what I think I find the most interesting about military intelligence versus the civilian intelligence agencies is that there's basically a dual track consumer. Like the CIA, their consumer is the White House. Their consumer is the National Security Council. You certainly have that as a consumer as well but the combatant commanders, and then going all the way down to the second lieutenant on the battlefield. That, to me, I mean, that's, again, when I was in the Balkans, things mattered to me that would not matter to the president. I cared about the weather in five days. Yeah. I cared about where the minefields were so I didn't walk in the wrong place. That's just, is that a dynamic? I know you did with G2. You had to worry about that as well. Is that a dynamic that's pretty unique to this job? Um, so so I'll probably in a somewhat circular way answer your question because – those dividing lines are not hard and fast. Uh, in terms of product use, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, in terms of customers or like, you know, who do, somebody says, okay, well, you're the director of DI, who do you work for? Okay, well, I have a lot of bosses. Um, principally, my, my boss that I answer to is the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, uh, Vice Admiral, retired uh, Kernan. And then ab above that in the chain of command is the Secretary of Defense. Okay, obviously, the chairman is a is a key part of what we do every day, uh, and all the combatant commands. So if somebody says, "Well, kind of, what's your customer base?" Well, we support the warfighter, but we support the warfighter. We support policymakers. Uh, we support folks on the hill. Obviously, our information gets to the president. But when somebody says, "What's your you know your principal existence?" It's it's the you know infrastructure, foundational intelligence that allows us to be able to go to war. Now, who else is going to read that? The president's you know it depends on the topic of what we're doing. There are things the, the president's going to see. He's going to read that. Um, but for the most part, it really is about the Department of Defense. And not to speak on behalf of the CIA, but I will. Uh, things that they do are going to be of great interest to the warfighter because there are things that they're going to report. Now, yeah, is there that's, – that's the president's, you know, intel organization, and that's who walks in, you know, most days with the PDB and gives them the brief. And – and they look at economics and other things, but there is a reporting that they do, and it looks at some of the military aspects. Of it. So, um, so the hard line is not necessarily there because of our ability to move things the way we can now, right? Just from an architecture standpoint. So, if you're sitting down 
at an infantry battalion, you know, you can get online and you can pull in CI reporting. You can pull in DI reporting. That is stuff that I wouldn't see in that as a lieutenant because you got, you know, some very specific things came down. It was all hard copy. So your ability to have that situational you know, awareness and, and tap into more of what the community is producing um, gives you a little better situational understanding, but it's not as if you're just saying, well, okay, here's my customer base, right. but there's a lot of people that are going to see that. Let me ask you another question about technology, because one of the things I find interesting now, and I, my background is technological intelligence and kind of studying that from a historical perspective, and in many ways, we didn't have to think too far beyond what the adversary was doing in their, their laboratories or what their production capabilities were, or like what does the army, the armor of the T-72 look like and how do we kill it? Yeah. Today there's a bit of a different dynamic, and that's kind of co-option of our technology to be used against us, whether it's ISIS driving M1s in Iraq or if it's an adversary hacking into General Atomics and stealing a design for the Predator or, you know, that, that element to how much more difficult does it make tracking adversaries' technology when perhaps a big part of it is taking our stuff and using it back against us? Um, so, you know, when I think about uh, technology, technology development, um, some things it's, it's in, in many ways it's a function of what is observable. Now, if you're going to go test a hypersonic glide vehicle, you can't really do that in a warehouse, right. right? So for us, it's some of the bigger kinds of things that are observable. It's the ones that are less observable, whether it's chemical warfare or things like that. It's a little more difficult. Um, the theft of technology is always an ongoing problem. Uh, recently, the Secretary of Defense said, hey, I want to put together this Protecting critically Critical Technology Task Force. And it's because of clear defense contractors, and I think it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars uh, that we've had infer- we've had technology stolen from us. Uh, in some cases, then we'll have some insights to what it is because we start seeing, you know, that the most uh, recent uh, Chinese fighter really looks a lot like the right. fill-in-the-blank, right? And because we know where the drawings came from as they start putting that together. Uh, but the big lift for us is making sure that we have a sense of what some of that disruptive technology might be without getting into details in terms of how we do that. Um, because we don't, you know, them to be able to actually field something that we didn't see it in the process of being fielding because as they're starting to develop and we start to try to understand it through technical means that we observe, uh, whatever that piece of kit might be, then you're building the kill chain. So how does it operate? What are the performance parameters? What's the telemetry behind it? How do I see it? How does it, you know, how does it perform? And... Uh, all the way from, and you don't want to be on the far right, you know, the bullet shooting down the bullet. If you can interject it in some other way, whether it's cyber or other means, that you can get at it in a, um, a, a means by which it's not about to go kinetic, right. a harder problem to solve. Like way left in blue. Exactly. So, you know, you start <clears throat> in systems that are running it, whether it's, you know, something that's in the back of the truck or supply chain or things like that. So a host of other ways to get after the problem. Let me talk about training, because training, I think, is a key component to um, to all of this, particularly with, you know, most, again, brigade commanders right now may have only been doing operations for the CT world. Yeah. Um, you can only do so much in kind of the basic course or the advanced officer's course. I mean, you got PME. A lot of that's insufficient to kind of not only make the leaders that you need to make, but also this transition, perhaps, away from CT towards the kind of the great power thing. Is there 
a way or what do you think of when it comes to kind of making officers junior to you, which is everybody at this point for the most part, uh, continue to grow? How do you make the next you? I mean, is, it kind of, is this something that you think about as DIA director, something you thought, thought about as G2, about how to kind of bring up the next generation? So, so as a G2, one thing we're focused on is how do we build um, really battalion and brigade twos and divisions and corps? Because uh, those are really the hardest jobs that we have out there. And it's getting them the leadership skills, it's getting them the technical skills, but it's really getting the, the technical skills not on technology, but how to think about solving intel problems. So if you go to anybody and says, well, you know, if, if you understand the fundamentals of anything, you're and everybody does, you can put together a successful team. And so for us, it's as we've gravitated toward technology um, and more of the science, we gotta make sure that we don't divorce ourselves from the art side of it. So the ability to do intelligence preparation in the battlefield, to do IPB, to do battle tracking, um, to sit down and understand an enemy's doctrine to the degree that they have a doctrine, or a culture, to understand how decisions are made, to be able to be predictive, not reporting history, uh, to s with, with some degree of, I don't want to say necessarily accuracy, but informed by what you know about the enemy and how he fights. Those are the kinds of details that I think, you know, that the, pr the previous generations, um, you know, like when I was a lieutenant, it was in their DNA. That was something inherently they did. They were really good at it. And now we get up and we start, you know, you don't really necessarily have to understand as much as uh, about how doctrine works and things like that with a CT fight. There are cultural aspects, you know, when you go to villages and things like that. But dropping ordnance and the technical piece of that is a little bit different dynamic as opposed to how do you battle track? And so when you have things like the National Training Center, you see people struggle with some of the basic blocking and tackling. So we've got to get back to some of those fundamentals. But the bigger thing that, that worries me um, in a future battlefield is just the sheer level of violence yeah. and we've not seen any of that um, I think really you know Vietnam and very intense fights in the jungle but major combat maneuver warfare uh, probably you know, goes back to, to Korea and there's some some things that I th that we have to you know kind of work our way through which is the degree of stress and trauma on the modern battlefield right. What will that mean? And are we going to be able to, you know, be able to function? And so I'm, I'm less concerned about the technology, and but I do give pause as I go back and read things like uh, Frere and Box, this kind of war, and it talks about the Korean War, and you just look at the amount of stress that a human can absorb and still be functional uh, cognitively, and keep their wits about them and, and continue to fight. That's that's pretty intense. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. 
Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Let's talk about kind of the mentoring downward. I wonder about the kind of mentoring upward. There's a outside of your office, there's a bunch of the photos of all the former DIA directors. Mm-hmm. There's not that many of them. Right, you're you're a very small fraternity, and that's been true for G two in many respects too. There's yeah. just not there. There's, there's quite a few more G more G twos, but certainly DIA has only been around for a shorter time, and the directors there haven't been all that many of them. So there maybe it's a lonely kind of fraternity. I'm wondering how much kind of cross conversation is there, like General Stewart. I know CIA. The former directors, they all know each other. They all chat. That's why, in many cases, they retain their security clearance so they can be brought back in to have a conversation. Or like G, you know, the G2 that preceded you, like Mary Legere, you know, someone like that. How much is there of that like, high level, like, call them up and say, I'm dealing with this. It's like, I got you. you know, I know exactly. Because there's not a lot of people that know what you go through on a day-to-day basis. Right. Um, so all the current living directors uh, do talk, and they stay in touch. Matter of fact, I was on the phone with one of them earlier today. I'll keep his uh, ID uh, secure. Um, so they do talk and they do help. And matter of fact, we we formally bring them in a couple of times a year to sit down. And one of the one of the uh, sessions is uh, our homecoming, and we bring all the we invite them all to come back in. Usually we get most, and we'll sit down and say, hey, here's what we're doing. And the good thing is we'll get some. Did you think about this or that? And you know, here's how I tackled that problem or whatever the issue was. And then we'll bring them up here, and uh, because they do keep their clearance, uh, we'll give them, you know, a classified briefing of, hey, here's what's going on in the world. But in terms of, you know, uh, where we are as an organization, things that we're focused on, it is invaluable for me to sit there and go, um, like, you know, for Admiral Jacoby, for example, you know, he was the guy that was in charge for 2003 when we got ready to go to Iraq, and so he had to kind of take DIA to go on a wartime footing. And he built some capabilities that helps us deploy ourselves uh, that still exist today. They've matured greatly, and they're pretty awesome. And so, you know, with him, he was up, and I said, hey, sorry, I'd really like to sit down and talk to you as we're looking at, you know, and this is before we got to the policy lead on DPRK and the nuclear program. I said, I'd really like to talk to you about, as you got ready in 2003 uh, to go into Iraq, how did you change DI on a wartime footing? And he was gracious, as they all are. Uh, came over and we sat down in the office for about an hour or so and he said, here's what I did. And what he really laid out for me was, here's the infrastructure and capabilities I put in, to get put in place that gives great deal of uh, ability for DA logistically to, to move itself that are still in place today and have only gotten better. So I, I tapped them quite a bit. Let me ask you about DIA's role in the big picture and in the intelligence community within the United States. You've been in intelligence officer your entire career. Um, how has the intelligence reorganization of the post-9-11 world, the mid-2000s, affected the way you do your job in a kind of a broader sense, military intelligence and DIA? So kind of the post-9-11, you know, was, you know, we all lived in our little stovepipes and we didn't want to share. Uh, for me, as I think about where we are, um, we operate, you know, there's, there's still challenges and walls and things like that, but we operate more as a community. Uh, there's more sharing. There's more transparency. Uh, we get together with the heads of the organizations and talk. We look at the problems that we have to solve. 
And I think the other part of that, and it's in the national defense strategy with the second line of effort the Secretary's laid out, which is how do we expand allies and partners? Not just your traditional Five Eyes partners, but some relationships that you probably never would have thought about having in the future um, that we need to do. So when you look at capacity and the challenges that we have on a global scale, we'll never do all that by ourselves. And so for us to come together as an IC, um, to understand where it is someone has primacy, how I can leverage capability or be informed by something you've done, uh, to be a little more deliberate in that division of effort. You know, as we look at the National Intelligence Priority Framework, how we do the NIPF, how we do priorities in DOD, to make sure that we're, um, we're not all chasing the same target. Um, there's a little bit of that overlap, and that's okay, because you don't want to just have one single point of somebody looking at something. Right. So for us to operate more of an enterprise, is kind of where we're building and we've been building toward uh, post 9-11. Uh, there's a couple of perturbations all the time. When you get a Snowden, everybody thinks, well, okay, let's lock things down. Uh, we have to work through those uh, because in a time of crisis, uh, as we look at you know what's going on with the DPRK, China, Russia, our partners, that's not a time when we retrench back. Uh, that's a time when we got to figure out you know who are the people you really trust and there's got to be a degree of transparency. And so that's why it shows up in the Secretary's uh, three lines of effort is one of those is we go to war, uh, we don't go by ourselves, uh, we go with partners and allies. And for me, the, the sharing, how do you share information, how do you move electrons and things like that, um, you want to build that muscle memory during peacetime. Right. You don't want to be sorting out that complexity in a time of war. And so there's nothing, nothing like a good conflict to get people to think, well, maybe we probably should share a little bit more. Well, let's do that now. Well, sharing overseas is an interesting concept to me because I, I'm wondering if you have different perspectives on who to talk with. Because the mill-mill relationships are slightly different than the broader political relationships. You know, so there's the five eyes and there's other countries, but we may have a military relationship with a country that in certain cases could be an adversary nation in a big picture sense, you know, whether you're going to fight, fight against ISIS or in Bosnia, you know, we weren't looking at the Russians as adversaries when we were there, but I did join operations with the Russians when I was in Bosnia and yeah. laughed at their, I mean, this is in the 90s, so I'm laughing at their, their BMPs and Burdums being put together with duct tape and yeah. zip ties. But there are times when intelligence sharing, especially on the military-to-military -military level, is done with people we wouldn't dream of doing yeah. at the big-picture political level. So interesting observations uh, over time. You know, we're, where we are now... Um, it is never lost to me if I'm ever in a meeting and I look across the table and there's a German officer, or if I look across the table and there's a Japanese officer. And nothing about, you know, ill feelings or any of that. It's just, it's always interesting of who your allies are as you go through time and through history. And the two that I mentioned are amongst our closest. And I have great relationships with my counterparts in both those nations. Matter of fact, it's rather ironic that on uh, December 7th, I was having a meeting with uh, my counterpart uh, in Japan. He was, you know, here in country. So it's really interesting to sit there on December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. I'm sitting down with the Japanese Vice Admiral, and he is a great guy, a tremendous partner, and it's a, an incredible relationship. So you talk about the Five Eyes, or NATO. Um, so we've built constructs uh, over time. So for me, as I think about these, I, I look at it from a different perspective. What's the problem you're trying to solve? So rather than sit and go, okay, well, this is, um, let me do these nations, or because I always have a, already have a relationship with them. That's part of it. But if you sit and go, well, here's the problem I'm trying to solve. Who has equities in that problem? 
whoever has equities in that problem may not be one of your traditional partners. Or whoever, you know, who has equities, placement in access, or capability may not be a traditional partner. And in some cases, that means you're going to work out on a bilateral. Uh, multilateral is already great, always great. And sometimes it's bilateral, but for a lot of times, it's kind of flipping the paradigm of, okay, I have a pre-existing relationship. Let's talk about how we get after this, as opposed to that's part of it. Uh, but for me, what's starting to emerge in some more discrete problems is who has placement access, who has an equity and can help solve the problem, and then let's talk about how we do that. I'm wondering about outreach to emerging powers or regional powers that we normally wouldn't think of before, you know, the, the growth of AFRICOM in the last decade and kind of focusing on some potential allies in places where it hasn't been part of traditional American foreign policy to kind of look toward those areas. Is that something that's kind of part of the DIA mandate of kind of looking around the world and seeing from a military perspective, like you just said, like where those partners may be for stepping off points? I'm thinking of the guy at one point that thought Diego Garcia was a good idea, you know, 70 years ago, was someone probably at the wasn't DIA yet, and you know, like, this is a really good strategic place at the bottom sure. of the Indian Ocean. I'm wondering if that's part of the mandate of kind of looking into the future and kind of seeing, okay, this is a trend. There's some kind of things going on here that I need to pay attention to. So maybe Molly is somebody. You know, I'm just kind of throwing sure. out idea. Um, so you look for instability uh, because you're trying to get a sense of where is it we might have to commit forces or where forces may be involved. So then you got to think, okay, well, have I done? the due diligence to have the order battled, or, you know, if somebody goes in and instability in Mali or, you know, pick, pick your country, um, do we have the holdings, the order battle holdings to give somebody a sense of, you know, here's the, here's the train, here's the infrastructure, here's the enemy, here's how they fight. So with all the IC, um, you know, we take a look at you know, where we think the, the pockets of instability are, who's going to be invested in those. In some cases, it's power projection from from great power nations that go in there and do that as well. So that's that's a, that's kind of the big icy lift of you know watching instability and threats and, and where we may have to invest. And then again, it becomes a resourcing issue. You do the order battle on you know the entire world. So where are you going to make your investments? Where are you going to you know assume some risk? And then and the other part of the risk piece, the risk calculus, and that understanding what's happening globally gets back to what we just talked about, which is partners and allies. So if somebody says, um, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about country X, and you go, you've been, you know, one of your partners, let's say, you know, one of your father's allies goes, well, I've got a really close relationship, or I've been working, you know, an attache corps or whomever in country X for the last 60 years, um, I can take that one. So as I sit there and rack and stack, okay, where do I really want to make investments? Where do I want to invest our assets or how do I support a combatant commander, then you really start overlaying the fabric of maybe it's not us, maybe it is a close partner nation that covers down on that. Same for intel production. It may be that when we look at all the order battle and how we maintain all that information, some of that gets parsed out to close partners to go, okay, you know, ground forces for country Y is going to be given to one of our close partners and, and we do other things and reciprocate for them. So, We've got to be a little more creative in, in how we generate capacity and how we generate understanding. And a lot of times, um, whether it's a colonial tie or just where they are physically in the world, um, you know, if we think about the Pacific, you know, we're always talking obviously with our New Zealander and our Australian partners and, uh, and the Koreans and the Japanese and others. Uh, 
because that's their backyard and they understand it uh, better than we and sometimes not just what's going on but the cultural aspects of it other regional pieces of that so why not leverage that as opposed to think you got to build all that yourself so I just have two more major focus sure. on one one is the public-private partnership element that DIA may have more than G2 or anything below that um, the idea of um, working with cleared companies and certainly organizations like that um, and how how has that been different than what you've done in the past perhaps you know you're now in a position where you probably have a workforce that involves non-military more than you certainly did when you were yeah. G2 or below where you might be dealing with contractors setting analysts or also at the highest levels of you know the military industrial complex to steal a term that's now you know there's there's a lot of connotation from, from, with it from, from Eisenhower, Eisenhower. Yeah. a lot of connotation I don't mean it in a negative way I mean just kind of that that large massive now 700 whatever billion dollar a year organization there's a lot more moving parts I would think as DIA director than there would have been beforehand. Is that an element that you now have to kind of take on that you never do before? As far as the contract workforce? Well, just and kind of the relationships that you now are working with, you know, whether it's satellite manufacturers or people who work at levels um, in the in the private world that you probably haven't had a direct relationship with before. Uh, the more technology we bring in, obviously, the more you do that. Um, you know, obviously, from a capacity standpoint, we have a number of contractors that work analytic. Yeah. You know work do analytic work for us uh, as the technology gets more complicated then obviously that's you know you're going to industry to build those kinds of things so it's uh, it it's one where you you also in the conversation you want to have with them is about the importance of what you do for the nation uh, so that you're getting best value for for what you're you know the problem you're asking them to come in and solve for you but that, that is part and parcel of what we do um, the other part you kind of alluded to is the experience level from in uniform or out of uniform mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It's 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 lessened over time. Uh, right now, we're probably about seventy-five percent civilian and twenty-five percent military. But of that seventy-five percent civilian, about seventy-five percent of that, at some point, either wore the uniform for a couple years or did a full twenty years and retired. So even though you see a lot of coats and ties and dresses and pantsuits and all that good stuff, uh, a lot of those guys and gals are former military. And you want to keep that love, you know, right. keep some of that expertise. And so, as we look at great power competition, how armies fight, how air forces fight, how combined arms is done, uh, if you get a colonel who is, you know, kind of done that and seen it from the army side, that's a different level of experience, as opposed to a thirty-year-old who may have just read about it and studied it and never stood on a field and watched the complexity of integrated combined arms. Right. And so one of the things that conversation I had with our director of analysis, Neil, I said, we got to figure out how we get, you know, because they are brilliant, uh, the young folks we bring in, how do we get them out to the National Training Center? I want them to see a talk. I want them to see the, the organized chaos that exists, getting in, you know, everybody getting ready for the battle uh, update brief, for the bub. And then what it means to synchronize fires or bring in helicopters and you, know. you want to shove them in the Mojave to do the Krasnovian. Uh, exactly. Okay. And because so, you have to have a little bit of context. Actually, to be honest, you had a lot of context. This is a lot more complicated than it looks when you read it on paper. You know, for example, um, you know the exercise Bostock that took place and the Chinese got involved with the Russians. Uh, what you may have read. Um, was far less integration than what was really achievable. And so you have to have a sense of perspective and context on that. And as we get back into great power you know, conflict, 
uh, and understanding large militaries, you know, over the course of the 17, 18 years since we kind of moved away from that. A lot of that expertise on Russia, you know, migrated to other jobs. You know, we went into uh, to the Balkans, you know, your Russian linguist started speaking Serbian. Uh, after 9-11, you found your Persian linguists were learning how to speak Pashto. So we, we looked for how we shifted within finite resources. So in this case, we got to make sure that we're adjusting uh, the Academy for Defense Intelligence in terms of how we train and educate. So it's one thing to sit there and go, here's the tradecraft, which is critical and important. Um, here's the technology. You know, here's how you operate with all the systems. But since you never put the uniform on, um, let me take you through a more deliberate process uh, of how armies fight. And so for somebody to be really good at understanding that from the red side of the house, you need to have a perspective on you know, what does blue mineral look like. Well, it's also important to understand the customer, too. I mean, the consumer, if you have no idea kind of, you know, what the day-to-day difficulties of, yeah. you know, war fighting is, you know, I mean, kind of fog of war going back to Clausewitz, you know, sure. the idea of, you know, the soldier on the battlefield or the commander on the battlefield has very particular things that they're dealing with at a particular point, and how best to cater your intelligence to that person is kind of understanding a little bit about what's going through their head. Yeah, so the other part the other part gets into words matter, and uh, I used to joke when I would, um, seriously though, talking to young officers, I said, when I was at Wachuca, I said, so, so here's the deal. When you talk to maneuver commanders, they speak two languages. They speak doctrine and they speak history. And so if you've not done much in the reading of history, you need to get on it. If you're not doctrinally literate when you give a briefing and you lose, use colloquialisms or jargon or things that's your normal vernacular, uh, your credibility is going to go out the window because you're not speaking in terms that they understand. Because um, when you say, you know, seize, contain, control, defeat, uh, defeat has a very specific connotation to it in terms of what it means and the ability to go on the offensive. And so that's an emphasis on uh, making sure that, you know, that they understand that uh, the language that they use matters. And so that's part of the education that we, we take them through as well. It's like saying repeat on the radio instead of saying again, right? Instead of saying again, yeah. <laughs> and so, so you have to understand that, and that's part of the, part of the education, part of the credibility. Let me wrap this up by asking uh, kind of a big question. You can answer this any way you want to. Is there anything you can point to that might redefine the mission of the DIA within the next 20 years or 10 years? And maybe not redefine the mission, but kind of big picture stuff. And, yeah. you know, think of threats that might be in the future, whether it's migration or climate change or resources or rogue states or kind of things that might, not another 9-11, but might kind of tweak the way that we look at the world. Yeah, so for me, that is data. Um, the things that are knowable. And then how do we deal with that? Uh, in 1996, uh, DI built the Modern Integrated Database, MIDB, and that's where we store everything. And it's for the most part, it's it's a very simple database, you know, almost spreadsheetish uh, in ways. And so think about what you do on the internet every day. You get on the internet and do a search, and just how rich the information that could come back, depending on what your query is. We have to build that. And so we have to go from this flat kind of database that's existed for the last, you know, 20 years to really a data environment. And that's what we're building now. And matter of fact, uh, the meeting I literally just walked out of late uh, was going through uh, the slides that we're going to sit down with the USDI and the Deputy DNI on the 27th to say, here's where we are, 
Are you comfortable with the way ahead? And so while obviously building a workforce uh, with the skill sets uh, that we want them to have is absolutely critical, um, but getting the data information right, the ability to bring all that in, all that foundational information, because if you're going to go to war, you're going to need that. I was going to use the word foundational when I asked yeah. you that. Like, you, know, you see this as the way to be able to be adaptive in the future if you've got that foundation of data. Yeah. So when you think about algorithms, you think about computer vision, you think about publicly available information, social media, all the information that is out there and that's knowable at real time. How do you ingest that, organize it, sort it? Uh, because you know, you and I are never going to sit down and go, "I'm going to read all of this." Right. Um, so there's got to be a level of trust. Uh, there's a an interesting book called Machine Crowd Platform that talks about you know the ability for algorithms to actually do better uh, than you know the senior SME executive's gut feeling based on his experience and I think his or her experience is always going to be value uh, added so it's a combination of that and so as we're looking at algorithms as we're training those algorithms on data you have to bake in tradecraft and so when you look at a response or feedback you can't just be well the computer told me that so it must be right um, it is an algorithm that we have tested that says if we have that feedback or that outcome we can say there's a high probability that it's correct, much the high probability that the analysis is right based on these factors because that's how we train the algorithm. So somebody says, I've automated a process to find a soldier from country X if he leaves garrison. Okay, well, how did you train the algorithm to do that? So there's attributes. And you can go back and, um, you know, kind of disaggregate that to explain whether you can have a high competence based on how you put that together to begin with and how you trained the algorithms. It's you know, much like Google and says, nope, that's a cat. How do you know that's a cat? I trained it to find right. cats. So we have to do it for military equipment, and, and then how do we do that at scale? When you get into that complexity of you know, combined arms, armies moving on the ground, how do you identify that, automate it, and then start aggregating to look at whether they're following doctrine, do I see courses of action developing that you know, to the naked eye, that may not you know, be visible to me. And so that's a big part of what we have to get right for uh, not only DID, but I think, you know, because of what we do to provide that foundation to the Department of Defense, uh, to the Baton Commanders, and for national decision makers, we got to get that one right, and that's a big look for us. General Ashley, thank you so much yeah, for taking the time you. to talk well, to us here. I appreciate here. it. I really appreciate it. Thank no, you. Good. See you again. Thanks. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, Every Tuesday, we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's intlspycast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow 
and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.